Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. We're going to talk about being consistent today. And just to jump right into it by talking about being consistent, the English word is defined by the new Oxford American Dictionary that I pull up on my computer here. It says acting or done in the same way over time, especially so as to be fair or accurate, unchanging in nature, standard, or effect over time. That's an important part of the definition. Uh, just interrupt here real quick. Because being consistent means holding to a standard. Being consistent in itself is not a standard. Well, why, why, why do I want to draw this distinction? Because somebody can consistently do something over time and it be the wrong thing. They could depart from a correct standard. You know, somebody could speed every time they get in their vehicle. That doesn't mean that speeding is good. Somebody could deny that Jesus is Christ and they could deny that Jesus is Christ in various conversations and all the time. They could be consistent in, in, in denying Christ, but that doesn't mean that Christ isn't our Lord. So having said that, that, that aside, coming back to the definition includes compatible or an agreement with something of an argument or set of ideas not containing any logical contradictions. This is a great definition. Kind of use it as the pattern for the, the lesson that we're going to talk about today. And I'm just going to start right off by using God as the standard. When we look at God, there is no variation. In James 1.17, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, meaning there is no variation. God doesn't vary. He doesn't change. He's unchanging in nature, okay? Unchanging in nature. In Malachi chapter 3, uh, and this is interesting because the context, uh, Malachi chapter 3 starts off with a prophecy about John the baptizer being the forerunner for Christ that we see when John, when we look at Matthew chapter 3 and other accounts, John comes preaching uh, the baptism of repentance, preparing the people for Jesus to come, preparing them to change. Well, in that context, God says in Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. In the greater context of the Old Testament, he made a promise. That promise in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down the line, God did not utterly destroy the children of Israel. He did in part when 10 tribes were taken away into Assyrian captivity, but the tribe of, of, of Judah and part of the tribe of Benjamin remained, and so forth, so on. God kept his word, even when man didn't keep their words. I want you to think about why that's important, why it's comforting for us. In Hebrews chapter 6, in a great context where we're talking about the priesthood of Christ and other things contextually in the greater context, if you've never studied the book of Hebrews, if you go to my website and you go to Bible Study Materials, New Testament Studies, and click on the book of Hebrews, I have a series of articles that I wrote on the book of Hebrews that you can use as a guide to help you. Don't use it more than that. It's just a guide to help you. And man, the book of Hebrews is a, a marvelous, wonderful study, a lot of depth, a lot of meat there to take into consideration. But let me come back to this. Why is this important? In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 13, when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, 
and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor of our hope. God cannot lie. He swore by himself. He keeps his word. He's dependable. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. Those are synonyms, right? Uh, this matters to us because I can hold fast to the hope of the promise in Christ Jesus because God is unwavering. He's consistent. He holds to his standard. It doesn't change. In 1 John, it's important for me in this light, and it ties to the previous point. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, talking to Christians, if you're not a Christian, one of the reasons you want to obey the gospel of Christ and be in Christ is to be able to have the forgiveness of, of God. Well, it says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So if, if I'm in Christ and I err, I ought not deny that I've sinned. That's been the case even going back in the Old Testament, Proverbs 28, 13, other passages. Don't, don't hide it. Don't pretend like you did nothing wrong. If I'm a Christian, I've erred. I can confess that fault to, to God. And He is faithful. He's dependable. I can trust that He's going to forgive me. Why? Because I'm in His Son. I'm in Him. I've walked outside, and God the Father says I can come back. Like when you read Luke chapter 15, 32 verses about those who, who have fallen, uh, who are outside and need to be returned or restored. God wants to see His children who have erred be restored. He's faithful. He's consistent in this. That goes back to the Malachi chapter 3 point. Israel had failed many times over. And what you see time and time and time again is God kept his word and gave them an open opportunity to come back to him. And John the Baptist shows that. Erring Israel, come back. Jesus shows that. The Jews who were guilty of crucifying our Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, were given the opportunity in Acts chapter 2 to repent and be baptized to have their sins forgiven. Acts 2, 38 through 41. And when they heard the word, you know, in Acts 2, 40, says, with many other words, that he testified to them, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And when they gladly received the word, they were baptized and added unto them about 3,000 souls. God's unchanging. All right? Even when man 
decides they don't want to believe in God or they want to deny the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. He's the unchanging standard, folks. He's consistent. Now, when we think about the application to us, there's a time where we need to change, right? What, what if you've sinned? Uh, you don't want to tell somebody all change is wrong. There's a time to change. Both Old and the New Testament teach us the importance of repentance, uh, the, the necessity of repentance. Ezekiel 14, 6, uh, Therefore say in the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. And chapter 18 and verse 30 of the book of Ezekiel, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Jesus taught Luke 13, 1 through 5, There were present at that season some of him that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said to them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I'm just going to stop here. This is a common belief that still exists in the world today. People, you've heard people use the phrase karma. If you've done bad, something's going to come back to haunt you or do this. Some people, quote unquote, swear by it. It's a false doctrine. God doesn't work that way. No. Jesus answers that. He says, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye were sinner, think ye they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem. So that's the way it is. Man, people think that that karma idea. They think, you know what? Something really bad happened to these people. They must have been really bad people. Jesus answered, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, you shall likewise perish. So you will perish if you don't repent. But those people didn't have bad things happen to them because they were sinners. In Acts 3.19, different context. Peter's preaching after a miracle has been performed and it caught the attention of the people. He says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Paul in Acts 26, when he's recounting his conversion account, this is, you know, he does this in chapter 22 as well and so forth, going back to Acts 9. He says in Acts 26, 18 through 20, when he's talking about his responsibility, the work God gave him to do, he says to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So you can see whether it's the Old Testament or the New, the necessity of repentance. Somebody cannot just continue in sin. Even in Christ, you know, there are people that teach this false idea of continual cleansing. In fact, we read earlier, 1 John 1, 7 through 9, they use verse 7 to teach continual cleansing. Of course, verse 9 says you have to confess your sins. That makes it conditional. But they will say there's unconditional forgiveness that God continually cleanses your sins. Not if you don't repent. If you don't repent, you've broken your side 
you've not done what God requires of you to obtain forgiveness. Now, having said that, once we repent and are converted, whether that's initially to become a Christian, which includes more than repentance, but that's a whole other study. If you're questioning that, um, give me, get in touch with me so we can study the scriptures from where you are right now. A lot of different people have been taught a lot of different things about what they must do to initially be saved and ultimately to have eternity as their home. And since so many people have been taught so many things, it's just more expedient for you and I to have that conversation so that I can know where you're coming from. Let, let me give you an example. There are some people that were, quote unquote, baptized as a baby, and they think that from that moment forward, they were saved, that there's nothing else in life that can alter that, that no matter what they do, they're going to heaven. Then there are other people that have been taught if they do these certain steps of salvation, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is, then that's it. They've sealed it. They're good. There's nothing they can do. Tuesday's podcast is going to be on John 19.30. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that believe different aspects of Calvinism, but one of the things that unites the Calvinists is they think Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross, meaning sins, past, present, and future were all taken care of with nothing that man has to do on any side of it. Of course, we just read from Ezekiel 14 through 6 through Acts 26, 18 through 20, man's responsibility to repent. And they redefine, they play games with all that. I'll get into to, to John 1930 as we, we're going to talk about that in Tuesday's podcast. But I bring all that up to say this. It is important for you to have a Bible study and to begin with what you've been taught wrong, correcting that so that you can get on the right path. Not knowing that, I could sit here and tell you this is what you need to do to be saved, and you may hear it through some false doctrine that you've been taught. Just, just take, for example, you know, the majority of religions that claim somehow, some way to be Christians. That can't be the case, by the way, right? Uh, it's false. There's one body, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, among the other... Uh, six other ones that are mentioned there in the bodies of the church, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. We can't have one body, one church, but then go around the country and the world and find tens of thousands of different churches and they all be one church. They all teach different things, act in different ways, so forth. There's one faith, one of those seven ones in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. One faith, that is one system of faith. The, the law of Christ, Galatians 6 and verse 2. So, to bring all this together, I may say to somebody, hey, one of the things that you need to do to be saved is to be baptized. And I might give them Mark 16, 15, and 16. Well, this is the way that people hear that differently. One person says, yep, that was done to me when I was two weeks old. Another person says, yeah, I did that when I was six years old. Another person says, well, one time I was in a church, and by that they mean in a building, not the people, and I heard this lesson on hell, and it scared me. And so the preacher said, if any of you want to come forward and be baptized and have your sins washed away, come forward now as we stand and sing. And this person said, I did that, so I'm good, I'm saved. Uh, another person might say, uh, you know what? Um, one time the, the priest sprinkled water on my head, and I went through the catechism classes, and I'm a good Catholic. You know, all kinds of different doctrines on baptism. Another person says, yeah, I was baptized to show that I was saved. It's an outward showing of an inward action. So just by mentioning the word baptism, 
the way people hear that is very different. So I'd want to study with you from where you are. That's so that we could go to the Bible and make any necessary corrections and then build upon that, okay? Because there's so many doctrines out there. You just look at all the podcasts, the YouTube videos, the Facebooks, and whatever other social medias are out there, TikTokers and Picket, whatever, whatever social media. They're just people that they have a phone and they can get online and say anything that they want to say. And maybe that's what you heard about certain subjects, and that's what your belief is. We, we got to fix that first. We can't plant the Word of God uh, in corrupt soil. And what you are taught matters. In Romans 6 and verse 17, speaking to Christians in Rome, uh, Paul made mention of his thankfulness. Well, for what? His thankfulness that they obeyed some kind of doctrine? No, he says, uh, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. So we, we, need to get, we need to make sure the form of teaching, the form of doctrine that you've been taught is the doctrine of Christ. Because if you don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have a relationship with God, 2 John verse 9. So I want to come back now. What we were talking before about before when I went on that little tangent is that there's a time to change, and that is repentance. If you find yourself in sin, you have to change. You don't want to say, well, no, I need to be consistent, so I'm going to stay on this road. No, you got to get off that road. That's the wrong road. If you need to repent, you're on the wrong road. There's two roads, the straight and narrow that leads on life and the broad and wide that leads on destruction, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. There are few that be that find that straight and narrow road that leads on life, by the way. Go read that, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So once you're repenting, once you've changed, and whatever that may involve for different people, different things, then you want to focus on consistency. Then you want to look at God and you want to say, you know what, I need to imitate the character of God. In fact, Ephesians 5, 1 says that, be therefore followers of God as dear children or imitators of God as dear children. And when you think about it, not only does that make you right with God, and puts you on the right path with God. Think about how that helps you relate to faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, Paul is writing, he says, that you may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. So, Paul refers to Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister. He was trustworthy. He was consistent. He was not varying. He was not verbal. Paul knew, I can send this man to you who's going to do the Lord's work among you. And I can trust him to look in on you. And I can trust him to tell you how I'm doing. To the church in Colossae, notice this name again, Colossians 4, 7, and 8. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant and Lord, whom I've sent unto you from the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. Look at, look at that. How two separate congregations there in Asia, so same general area, so to speak. Here's this brother that is faithful. He's dependable. He's consistent. He can be sent. He can be trusted. Third John, John writes Demetrius in verse 12, by the way, 
Demetrius hath a good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. Think about the consistency of everybody giving a good report about somebody. You can depend on this individual. I, I have brethren in my life I'm very thankful to God for that I can depend on, that they are consistent, they are predictable, and they see that in me as well. Years ago, um, a problem arose, and uh, one of the sisters in Christ here, a little shout out to Sheila here, uh, she said something and it kind of stuck with me. It made me feel very good uh, when she said it, and, and I've kind of kept it in, in my back pocket a little bit for edification. Uh, but somebody had, had brought up something was going on, and, and she said, well, that's not Brian. That's not his standard operating procedure. So what she was saying is, I'm consistent. What I'm going to say and what I'm going to do is consistent. It's predictable. She knew what was or was not said or done just based on consistency. That uh, She's known me for many years, and over those many years, she's seen the same behavior over and over and over and over again. Uh, That's the way brethren ought to be. Because on the other hand, if you're not consistent, Proverbs 25, 19 says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You ever had a broken tooth? How about a foot out of joint? I've had both. <sighs> Painful. An unfaithful man, somebody that can't be depended upon. So when we look at ourselves, we need to be consistent. When I looked at the scriptures and thought about the subject that we're talking about, thought about Colossians 1.23, how the wording there is, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, that's kind of a key word here, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which is preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, made a minister. Be grounded and settled. Think about that. Think about that. Let, let that sink in just a little bit. To be grounded and settled. The word settled, if you were going to do a little word study uh, on it, hedreios or something like that is the pronunciation of the Greek term. You can find it as Strong's number 1476 in your your uh, Greek to English lexicons that are available to you. And, and it, it means to sit, to be sedentary, to be immovable, settled, to be steadfast. Well, all of that fits the definition of, of being consistent, doesn't it? I know, I know where this person's going to be. Does God know where you're going to be? Do, if you're a Christian, your brothers and sisters in Christ know where you're going to be? When we look at God, we talked about how there's no variation in our Father, no change. Same is true of our Lord and Savior, who is also deity, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is saying yesterday and today and forever. Wow. Now, that, that means in character, right? Because we know that Jesus was in spiritual form, then came in a fleshly form, and now has gone back into heaven. So, you know, the appearance of Christ has changed, but the character hasn't. Even when this world ceases to exist, Jesus is the same. In Hebrews chapter 1, which is a quote out of Psalm 102, 24 through 27, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, 
says, But unto the Son he saith, that is, speaking to Christ, the Father says, Thy throne, O God, that's important, again, establishing the deity of Christ, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above all thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture, thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Jesus, same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that interesting? Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews points that out. Chapter 13, in different words, but the same point, points out the same. Why do you think Jewish Christians in the first century needed to realize that? Well, they were seeing a change in law change in priesthood. In fact, when you read uh, Hebrews chapters 4 through 10, those two points are, are going forward, 4, 5, 6, and 7, the priesthood. Chapter 8, there must also be the change of a law. Chapter 9, chapter 10, the sacrificial system changed everything. So if you were a Jew in the first century, your head might be spinning a little bit. What had in place been in place for thousands of years, the law of Moses, the prophets, now, you know, there's a new covenant. There's a new law. We're, we're become dead to one to be married to another. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Your head spinning. So here's the message of comfort. The law has changed, but the Father and the Son have not. Their character is the same. The promises have not gone away. It's reassurance. It's like a parent to a child. Maybe you're, you're in a position. There have been multiple times during my children's uh, youth where we moved. And we always wanted to reassure them, you know, we're going to a different city or a different state or in one case across the country. Um, and yes, you know, the location is going to change. Um, different things are going to, to vary. But don't worry, mom and dad are going to stay the same. Everything's going to be fine. Our house is not our physical house. It's our family. And you're going to have mom and dad regardless of where we live in the physical. Well, for a Jew, that similar thing needed to be pointed out. In fact, in chapters 3, the comparison between the house of Moses and the house of Christ is laid forward. And that now you're the house of, uh, of God. Well, it's, hey, look, you may have moved from the physical law of Moses into the spiritual law of Christ, but God has remained in the same place. Jesus has remained in the same place don't worry. There's not a variation there. Even though Jesus came in the flesh, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Philippians 2.5-7, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men... Yet, John 8, 56-58, Jesus says, And this is why I was in the flesh. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said he to the Jews, Thou art not yet then, I'm sorry, then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Oh, they recognized, they wanted to kill him after he said that. They recognized exactly what Jesus meant uh, by that. And most Bible students would, you know, when you go back and you read Exodus 4, 3 and 4, when, when the Lord is talking to Moses, he refers to himself as I am. The I am. Tell them the I am has sent thee. Well, the Jews caught that picture. Our Lord is saying before the promise was made to Abraham. So before not only the conversation with Moses, but before the promise was originally made, Jesus is saying, I am. Things have changed. He was in the flesh. The law and the prophets were until John, Luke 16, 16. The message was changing. Jesus says, I haven't. I haven't. In fact, the words of Christ and the words of Christ were the fulfillment of the law. So things are changing in a good way, but Jesus hasn't. Hey, we're moving cross country, but don't worry. You still have your Lord God. Like our Heavenly Father, whom we are to follow that we read about in Ephesians 5.1. What about the examples of Jesus? Doesn't 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22 teach us to follow the example of Jesus? The text says, For here, even hereunto you call, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. We ought to be consistent. Even when there may be variables in the flesh, we ought to remain consistent. You know, let's say you get a new job. For whatever reason, you leave one job and you get an X. You put together a resume. You put references on that resume. Somebody calls those references and they're looking for consistency. Maybe they'll talk to previous employers. Does this person show up on time? Are they honest? Are, a hard, are they a hard worker? If somebody goes back over your X amount of years of work experience, they should see consistency. This person may have changed jobs or titles, but their character has remained the same. Now, here's where Jesus is especially important as our consistent example. Unlike the Father, Jesus walked in the flesh. So if you were to keep reading, you know, earlier we, we looked at 1 John 1, 7 and 9, and then, you know, you, you got verse 10 that repeats the point that is made there uh, in, in verse 9 where it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word not in us. Now that's if you need to confess your sins, verse 9. So that's talking to a Christian who has sinned. Chapter 2, if you look at verses 1 through 6, this is where Jesus being in the flesh becomes real important. He says, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, not when. You know, some people talk about sin like it ought to happen. No, it says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, hereby we do know that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth him, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Jesus is our example. Walk like him. Well, well, what was that? In John 8, 28, 29, 
And then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak those things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not let me alone, for I do always those things that please him. We follow Jesus' example. We're going to do what pleases the God. And we'll be consistent in doing so. We'll have an unchanging character. We'll be pure. We'll be holy. We'll be just. We'll be blameless. All those instructions that we see throughout the New Testament. So that's one way we can think about consistency by looking at Christ. Another way, a way that when we're looking at the, the definition of, of consistent and we're talking about you know somebody who is unchanging in nature, standard, or effect over time. Well, what the biblical word that comes to mind there, and kind of like being grounded and settled, is to be steadfast. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, the quote unquote resurrection chapter, ends with therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not vain in the Lord. Steadfast defined for you right there by being unmovable, by being grounded and settled. Be steadfast. It's not a one-time thing. It's being consistent. You live in a consistent manner. You conduct yourself in a consistent manner, in a godly way. When people look at you, they ought to see Jesus, and when people look at Jesus, they ought to see you. Because you're walking as he walked. And it's not just, hey, I do this on Sundays, but not on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. No. It's being steadfast always. Think about this language in Hebrews 3.14. He says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The congregation in Philadelphia to Congregations in Revelation 2 and 3 were faithful, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Philadelphia was told in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Hold fast. Be steadfast. Not tossed to and fro. In a context talking about the end of spiritual gifts, the temporary nature of them, Ephesians 4.14 says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with the wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Not going right and left, not swaying all the time, but, but being steadfast, not tossed to and fro. So let's talk about some applications, some, some tests there, because one of the things we always want to do is examine ourselves. In fact, it's a, it's a command, it's an instruction, 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. No, you're not your own selves. How that Christ is in you, except you be uh, reprobate. So examine and test yourself is what Paul told the Corinthians. We, we want to be like that, right? So when you look at your life, are you a predictable person? And not just do your brethren know that they can trust on you. What about people of the world? Do they know how you're going to be, how you're going to behave? Or are they waiting for you to give in? Do they think that at some point in time you're going to cave to whatever desire they have? Well, think about this. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5 says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles." 
When we walk in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wines, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein, here it is, they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Do they, people from your past, before you were faithful in Christ, if that is part of your past, look at you like you're strange, you've changed, and not saying, well, he's not going to drink with us now, but give it a month. No, they know that that's changed in you. Can people know because you hold fast to the pattern? And isn't that what we're supposed to do? 2 Timothy 1.13, to hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me and faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. If we're holding to the pattern, we're going to be the pattern. We're living according to the instructions of Christ. Our behavior is going to be predictable. Can people look to you as a pattern of godliness? Just borrowing off that point. Living the pattern, becoming the pattern, being the pattern. In 2 Thessalonians 3, yourself, 3, 3 yourselves, here I'm starting to think about the wording of the verse. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus write, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. They, they said, look, we were a pattern. We were a pattern. You look at us, you see a pattern. When, when people look at you, do they see a consistent pattern? Take a more specific into account. You know, the Bible teaches us that we're to look at evil a certain way. In Psalm 97, 10, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the soul of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. In Amos 5, 15, Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. And in the New Testament, Romans 12, 9, Let love be without dissimulation. That means without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. So let's think about this, our consistency in this. Some people would read those verses and they would come to the conclusion like some of the recent things that I've seen. Um, one of the recent things that has come across my email and I've seen it in other places is to boycott Target because Target department stores in the United States are supporting the LGBTQ plus movement. I, I am not aware enough to speak in any depth on that subject. So if you're looking for more details, I'm not the person to ask. If you were to send me an email saying I should boycott something, I, I delete it. Let me tell you why I delete it. Because there is no place on earth where I can do business that is holy, righteous, pure, and just to a consistent standard. Even if I were to do business with Christians and Christians only, those Christians are still buying their supplies and their utilities and so forth and so on from people of the world. And that is people that are divorced and remarried, people that say and do things they ought not to do, people that purchase things they ought not to purchase, so forth, so on. I um, go grocery shopping a certain day of the week, and we generally do buy our groceries at Walmart. There's Walmart supports all kinds of ungodliness. In fact, um, I, every time we're walking from one end of the store to the other, there's a whole aisle where there's wine and other things being sold in, in the local Walmart that we sell. Well, wine is a mocker. 
Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Uh, there is nowhere where I can buy groceries where that company and all that they stand for is holy, righteous, and just. And the Bible supports the fact. So let me, let me show you this, okay? Because this is consistency that we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13, this is where I stand. I stand on the pattern, not on the current move against things. I, I don't know what Target is selling because I rarely go to Target. Their prices exceed my budget, okay? So we rarely are in a Target store. But 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, Paul, here the context is dealing with uh, a fornicator. He says, I wrote in you an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or railer, or drunker, or extortioner, with such one know not to eat. For what I have to do to judge them that are without... Do not you judge them that are within, but them that are without God judges. Therefore, put away from you among yourselves that wicked person. The people I'm to withdraw from are the erring among the saints. The world, I'd have to leave the world. That was in the first century. Do you recall the Roman government historically persecuted Christians, yet Christians were told to obey that government and pay taxes, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Pay taxes, that means money that was being paid we're going to be used against you, like our government today. Money that we pay taxes for, we obey that ordinance of man, is used to promote evil. Folks, there's no escaping it. To be consistent, you'd have to go live on the moon, and you'd have to find a way to get there without buying anything from a non-Christian. And then you would, of course, find that the idea of boycotting evil is impossible in the world that we live in. Now, having said that, and, and I want you to follow this point, that doesn't mean you join in with the evil. I'm not going to buy alcohol at Walmart or whatever Target is selling that is for the LGBTQ+. And however you spell it, you know, I heard one man say that, that he made a difference between Target and other things because uh, Target is officially warring against Christians. So is the federal government. So is the public school system. So is the co colleges. Everything that is evil is against God. Whether it's stated outright or subtled, subtly, it's against God. So the way I can be consistent Jesus praying for the disciples, and then he turned that prayer later towards all that follow in verses 20 through 23. He says, I've given thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I need to be in this world, but I don't need to be of it. I don't need to have close associations with this world. And James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulterers, know ye not friendship with the world's enmity with God, who therefore shall be a friend of the world, is the enemy of God. I don't need to join in, but I need to balance that. And thankfully, the scriptures give us the right balance. In Romans 12, 17 through 21, which by the way, if you keep reading, goes into chapter 13 that I referenced earlier, says, 
recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place in the wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I need to live peaceably in this world. That doesn't put me on the front lines of a march against some social injustice. That, that means I look at this world and shake my head at how dumb it is, try to rescue as many as I can with the gospel, and do what I need to do to survive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, does that mean that I can do business in places where ungodly things are sold? Watch the clear authority here. Like This should be the end all in all these discussions. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that is markets, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Now, why is this said? Notice as we read, and in fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, um, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is talking about lawful liberties for the most part. Context changes back and forth a little bit, but the overall authorized liberties. In the markets, there were meats offered to idols being sold. The authority here was, go that market, that is a market that supported idolatry. So that earlier point about, but, but that business is against God. These were markets that were in support of idolatry. Go and go ahead and buy there. Don't ask any questions for conscience sake. It says, but if any man saying to you, this is offered unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it. Notice it didn't say avoid the market. But if somebody's going to tell me, hey, that was offered to an idol, follow this line of thought. Eat not for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord and the foreigners thereof. Conscience, I say not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another's man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews nor the Gentiles nor the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seek my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. You can go to the feast if you're invited by the unbeliever. You can eat what is set before you asking no questions for conscience sake. That's if any man of them believe not, bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go, what service set before you, eat asking no question for conscience sake. I can do that. The only time I need to worry about it is when it might offend the weak. But me, if I'm a faithful Christian, strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I ought not be offended. I know that no matter what Target or Walmart or anybody else sells, I know they're people of the world. I'm not there supporting them. I'm buying food for my family. And where I'm going to go is where it's cheaper. And if one of my brethren were to look at me and say, I'm struggling with this for this reason, I would abandon some things for their conscience sake. Now, I say some things and somebody might hinge on that. Well, because it's to be to no doubtful disputations, Romans 14, 1 through 3, okay? Romans 14, 1 through 15, 9 is dealing with authorized liberties and brethren that have a weak conscience, but it's not to doubtful disputations. Somebody were to tell me, I'm offended if you shop anywhere that's associated with sinfulness. What they're basically telling me is 
I, I can't do business anywhere on planet Earth. I'm going to die. I can't buy electricity from El Paso Electric. And let me tell you what, we're heading into triple digit season. Might as well just say this might be the last podcast. I'm done. I'm shutting off the electric, no air. We're just going to die. No water because the water company is people of the world, etc., etc. See, it's ridiculous, okay? Once you come to that realization, once you study with that weak brother, all the other things are out, out there. You're not punishing a business by not purchasing something there. And if you were to put a business out because you've boycotted them, you know what's going to happen? Another business is going to step up and take their place. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to sell evil things. Why? Because we live in a world that's evil. 1 John 5, 19. You're supposed to shine as lights in that world. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. And that's it. That's the, the end of it. Consistency demands that. Now, where you become inconsistent is when you say, I'm not going to shop at this place because they stand for this. Consistency would demand then that you shop nowhere. That supports evil. So when you go into your grocery store locally, are they all faithful Christians? Was everything grown on the farm of a faithful Christian? Are the utilities provided by faithful Christians? And on and on you go. It's going to fall apart somewhere. Even if you live in some kind of commune, it's going to fall apart somewhere. Something was brought in from somewhere that was not produced by a faithful Christian. You're inconsistent. Therefore, your argument... Your idea is illogical. It has contradictions. Can't do that. When we look at this world, 1 John 3, 8 through 10 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. Who's that include? Most of the places you do business, folks. Think about my podcast. My podcast, the only place where you could say my podcast appears that's not directly connected with evil is my own personal website, wordstruth.net. But I use a hosting company, and I assure you, they have plenty of websites that contain evil. Hmm. Wherever else you're listening to it, Podbean, Spotify, Apple, Google, Samsung TVs, YouTube, Rumble, wherever it is, there's all kinds of sinful con content on those. Consistency would say, I'm shutting down this podcast. I'm not going to listen to the truth anymore. Why? Because it appears somewhere where there's other things. That's everything in the world, okay? The house that I live in was built by people that are sinners. So was your house. Even if you personally built it, you didn't make every part of it. Do you follow? 1 John 3, 8 through 10, He that committeth sin is the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for a seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. He that committeth sin is the devil. So how many people do you work with, beside, for, do business with that are sinners. You pay your taxes to who? Sinners. Consistency says, I'm going to abhor evil, but I also have to learn to live aside it. And the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13 and the true application of it is that God is going to separate us from them. When? In the judgment day. Now, to be consistent, that doesn't mean I'm going to go out and be best friends with the world. 
I'm not going to have the same interactions with the world as I do with my brothers and sisters in Christ because I abhor that which is evil. I don't go stand in the alcohol aisle or other aisles of the grocery store wearing their sinful things because I abhor them. I walk past them. You get it? Be consistent. When you look at your manner of life, think about this when it comes to consistency. Just kind of change pages here a little bit. You think about your manner of life, 2 Timothy 3.10. Paul says to Timothy, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. So let's combine the, the previous point with this. If one of my brothers and sisters in Christ here were told, you know, Brian doesn't ever shop at this store because this is there. What my brothers and sisters in Christ know about me is that I'm consistent. They would know that that's not true. They would know I may not shop certain places, hey, hint, mainly because they're more expensive. So I might not shop certain places, but it's not to boycott them for evil. My brethren will know that because I'm consistent in that. I consistently apply that principle. Do you? I have a manner of life. What's your manner of life? If someone were to ask my brethren, tell my brethren here, yeah, Brian has gone out and, you know, got some friends and, you know, I'm surprised to see him. You know, he has them over in his backyard. They drink. Now he's not drinking and they do this and they do that. I'm surprised to see him. My brethren are going to know you're lying about Brian because I have a consistent manner of life. I'm not going to be among those people. I might pass by them. I might live next door to them, but I'm not going to have them to my home. I'm not going to have social gatherings with them. I'm going to be in the world, but not of the world. That's my manner of life. What's yours? Now, there are variables. Remember when we were reading in 1 Corinthians 10? If somebody that believe bid you, invite you to a feast, and you'd be disposed to go, if one of my brethren were reported to be sitting at a table of people at a restaurant like Chili's or Applebee's or somewhere like that that serves alcohol, and they said, you know, I saw so-and-so sitting at this table, I know some of my brethren where I would say that was probably a work meeting. I know they didn't choose to do that socially, but they may have been disposed to go to a work meeting where there were people that were engaging in things that they did not engage or a work event or something along that line. But if they were to say, and you know what? He or she was drinking alcohol. I would say no way because my brethren have a consistent manner of life. I wouldn't even need to check on them. I, I know that about them. They have a consistent manner of life. They're predictable. When we look at the scriptures, what God promises doesn't change. That makes him predictable, consistent, right? Like in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts of God or the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He doesn't change what he says he's going to offer. When we look at our consistency, can the same be said? In James 5, 12, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. What about your consistency? Can people just accept that your yes means yes and your no means no? 
because you have a consistent manner of life, because you consistently look at evil the same way, because you are consistently a pattern of godliness, because you are predictable, you have a standard operating procedure. Again, unless that means you've done something wrong that you need to change, you ought to be consistent. Now, I want to come back to a point that I brought up real quickly. There are some things in which consistency doesn't matter, like with authorized liberties. Uh, and and I, I want to come back to the target point. If somebody is personally affected in their conscience with doing business at a certain place, they might, might be inconsistent. As long as they recognize that, Romans 14, 1 through 3, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth he made all things, the other is weak, eateth herbs. Let him that eateth despise him, let him, let not, sorry, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not he which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. There are matters of conscience where there's going to be inconsistencies. There may be somebody who says, you know what, the Bible says witchcraft is wrong, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. So I'm not going to watch this particular movie because it glorifies witchcraft. But then you find out that they're a Star Wars fan. And Star Wars has the force. It's a religion, right? Jedi uh, knights are a form of religion where they use mystical powers and things of that nature. Well, as long as they're not sitting there saying, hey, you can't watch this and you can't do that, then you can receive them as long as it doesn't cause a problem. I need you to think about that for a moment. Maybe there's somebody that says, I'm not going to shop at Target because I hate whatever stand they've currently taken. Okay. As long as you don't look at me and say, you cannot shop at Target, I'm going to leave it at that. The moment you start saying, you can't, that's when I'm going to point out, you're not consistent. I'm going to ask you, where do you shop? And you're going to say, I shop at this place. And I'm going to tell you, well, well these are the things that they sell there that are sinful. The clerk that rings you out is a sinner, a child of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. How do you give them money? I'm going to point out the inconsistencies. Okay? There are other areas where consistency changes as well, like how we relate to some people. Think about Jude 22 and 23. It says, Some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Let's say you have a babe in Christ who is suffering from what we just talked about, an inconsistent conscience. You're going to be gentle with them, right? But what about somebody that's been a Christian for 30 years? If somebody's been a Christian for 30 years and they have a weak conscience, you have a problem. The time when they ought to be teachers and they need to be taught again the first principles of the oracles of God, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, we have a problem. That's a different conversation. It's not going to be consistent. It could be the same thing. If my 30-year-old brother in Christ looks at me and says, you can't shop at Target, that's sinful. I'm going to look at them and say, are you stupid? Where are you getting that from? But if a babe in Christ says, I can't believe you shop at Target, you can't do that because they support the LGBTQ+. I'm going to handle that with explanation, Bible study. And if it's going to offend their conscience, I'm not going to go. I'm going to guide them. I'm going to help them understand. I'm going to give them space to understand it. 
even with brethren in different circumstances. Think about 1 Corinthians 7.34. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. So if there's a difference, there's not consistency, right? It says, The unmarried woman care for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she that is married care for the things of the world, how she might please her husband. There's going to be a difference in how the unmarried and the married woman is. So there's not going to be consistency, right? That's why a married woman needing counsel should go talk to another married woman, not to an unmarried woman who doesn't have a husband because their focuses are different. We have to be careful. We have to be careful when it comes to things like consistency. And, and, and the reason why towards the end of this lesson I'm bringing some of these things up is we don't want to be lawmakers. And the, the subjects like this can create people who have overbearing consciences to be emboldened. I don't want to do that. James 4.12 says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judges another? And the idea that judges there is condemns. You know, we know that as Christians, we have to judge people. It's, it's a command in John 7.24, right? We're, we're commanded, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous ju judgment. Excuse me. There's different types of judgment that are condemned, like hypocrisy, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, or here, where you're a law creator. Don't be a law creator. You don't have that right. The creator of law is God. So that fits a lot of different ways. And you don't want to use consistency to become a law creator. You, you don't want to look at somebody. Like if you were to contact me and you were to say, yeah, I've stopped shopping at, at uh, Target uh, because I, I just can't support what they're doing. I would say, okay. If you left it at that, that's where I would leave it. Why? Because I'm not going to be a lawgiver. I'm not going to tell you you have to shop at Target. You may feel like it's just too much for you. Fine. You're allowed personal scruples. As long as they, you don't become a lawgiver. So think about this lesson. Consistency is not the standard. But being consistent to the standard is a way that we know one another. The way that we can examine ourselves in relationship to God is the way God is. I think there's a lot of value for you to unpack in this subject matter if you really think it through and be honest in the subject. And I think you can also see it, especially as we came towards the end of this lesson, how it's not always cut and dry. How I might relate to one person or another or one situation or another might contain variables. And even with God, uh, we see that, that, the variables. The instruction there in Jude 22 and 23 uh, that I gave you as one of those examples where there is a variable. Or in dealing with the weak and the strong where there is a variable. Right? In the married and the unmarried woman, there is a variable. Be cautious. Be consistent to the standard. That would mean that you live according to the authorized variables. I can go to the market. I can go to the feast. I can eat asking no question for conscience sake, lest it becomes a stumbling block to somebody else. Just follow the standard and you will be consistent. I want to give you a final thought. It's about inconsistency. 
And I want you to think about the language in James 1.8. It says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What about the person that's always tossed to and fro that we read earlier in Ephesians 4.14? Don't be that person. Be consistent to the standard, the Word of God. Thank you for listening. I hope this lesson has been edifying and challenging and informative. I hope that it gets you to want to dig in and think a little bit more and, and take some of these scriptures into their context and think about them a little bit more deeply. If you have questions, call me up, 915-525-5794. Email me, brian at wordsoftruth.net. And of course, you can always visit the website, wordsoftruth.net. Well, I thank you so much for listening. Hope you'll tune in uh, on Tuesday to hear the, the what, does, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished. That's going to be the podcast then. Uh, till then, thank you very much.